Welcome back to the Altco's Mainstream Podcast. Today's show was recorded live from Alts LA in partnership with Kaya. Kaya is the leading global professional body dedicated to alternative investment credential programs. On this episode, we speak with Vice President Dan Quayle, the chairman of Cerberus Global Investments. We discuss the current state of private markets, how geopolitics plays a role in investing, and how Cerberus grew into the firm it is today. Vice President Quayle is the chairman of Cerberus Global Investments and a member of the firm's senior leadership team. He joined the firm and played a role in overseeing its growth to over 60 billion of AUM today. Prior to joining Cerberus in 1999, he served as the 44th Vice President of the United States of America to President George H.W. Bush from 1989 through 1993. In 1976, Vice President Quayle was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives and re-elected in 1978. In 1980, he was elected to the U.S. Senate and was the youngest senator from Indiana. He was re-elected to the U.S. Senate in 1986. Following his vice presidency, Vice President Quayle authored three books, including Standing Firm, a vice presidential memoir, which was on the New York Times bestseller list. He was a distinguished visiting professor at Arizona State University's Thunderbird School of Global Management for two years, and he was also active for many years on the lecture circuit in the United States and internationally. Thanks, Vice President Quayle, for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast to share your views and knowledge. If you like this podcast, you can listen or read more about alts by subscribing at alcosmainstream.substack.com. Welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. We have Vice President Dan Quayle here. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Looking forward to it. Pleasure to have you on. You've had a fascinating career. You've obviously been in politics for quite some time, but now you're in the private equity world and you're the chairman at Cerberus. How did you go from the political world into the world of private equity? I got started in the political world when I was young. I was 29 when I got elected to Congress, and then I was 33 when I got elected to the Senate and 41 when I got elected as vice president. And I was 45 when I was the former vice president. I think that probably the youngest and the former vice president, not the youngest elected vice president. There are two others that were younger than I was. I tried to run for president in 2000, didn't work out. And after that, my wife was very encouraging. She says, your political career has been great. House, Senate, vice president, presidential run. Let's go do something else. I met Steve Feinberg in 1999 after I got out of the presidential race. And he encouraged me to join Cerberus, which I did. They needed some help in Asia and Japan specifically. And I worked there for a couple of years and he said, look, if you want to be more full-time, let me know. I said, well, I really like this. I think I'd like to make a career out of it. He says, okay. And I've been chairman of Cerberus Global Investments since 2001 and loved every minute of it. Love politics, but this has been a great second career for me. What do you think were some of the biggest lessons you learned from politics that you've applied to being in the private equity world? Politics, 
as in the private equity market, you have to exercise judgment. It's very important. You've got to know people. You've got to listen to people. You've got to get along with people. And you have to have certain values that you execute. And there's a lot of similarities in politics and business in that respect. Because judgment is just so important. And look, whether it's politics or private equity, the end of the day, it's people. And people matter and people get things done. So there's certain skills that clearly go from one side to the other, from politics back to the world of finance. I think today's world, the world of politics matters a lot when it comes to thinking about investing and finance. Things change very quickly, geopolitical impacts. How do you think about the world of how geopolitics is impacting the investment landscape? Well, the geopolitics, big time impact on investing today. just take the war in Ukraine. Many people in the investment world are hoping that the war is going to be short-term. It's not. I keep telling them it's not. It's going to be long-term. It's going to be ugly. Putin has to win. Otherwise, he loses his job or maybe even his life. And Ukraine should win. And I think hopefully will prevail. But we don't know how this is going to end, except it's going to be a long-term venture. It impacts Europe. It impacts the Middle East. It impacts the United States. It has a huge impact. The situation in China is even larger, if you will, to some extent, because the Chinese economy is so big. And now you're looking at decoupling from tech in China. You're looking about friendshoring, if you will, and supply chains getting reoriented closer to home. Unfortunately, in my opinion, there's a very protectionist, isolationist viewpoint that's growing in America. It's not good for America. It's not good for the world. Hopefully, we'll get through that. But the geopolitical situation usually is something that you put aside and you look more of fiscal policy, the monetary policy, where's the credit these days. Now you got to factor in the geopolitical side. So I live in the world of venture. People less so have been from politics necessarily versus private equity. There have been people who've gone from politics to the world of private equity and work with private equity firms like yourself. And there's clearly some level of understanding of macro landscape, geopolitics, et cetera. Do you think that's going to become a more increasing trend of investment firms bringing in people who understand the macro environment and political landscape to help them think through investing? I would think so. And I think most of the the larger firms for sure are having people that have an understanding of global politics, that have the connections that know how things operate in the international arena. But a startup in the venture world, not necessary to have somebody like that. Although they they can be very helpful because they know people that will invest and they know the regulators and they know not just the international environment, but the local political environment. And it's important, just like this CHIPS Act. There's so many regulations coming out with this CHIPS Act. You better have somebody in Washington They can filter through that and figure out exactly what it says and what it means and what you're going to do. Well, on that point as well, as investors shift to investing more in hard tech or the world of climate, the political connections or understanding what governments are going to do ends up being really important. Well, government is very involved. As I said, the CHIPS Act is the first one that it's really, to some extent, picking winners and losers, which we've never done before. But we did with the CHIPS Act. And there'll probably be other things. Climate change, for example, decarbonizing the world. There's huge incentives now for any technology related to green energy in particular. 
Some of it's helpful, some of it's wasteful, but you got to give it a chance. So let's talk Cerberus for a little bit. You joined Cerberus at the early days of the private equity industry, really. There was less than a trillion dollars of assets under management in the private equity industry. Now, Cerberus is a $60 billion plus platform itself, and a very integrated platform does a bunch of different things across different strategies globally. How have you seen the evolution of Cerberus happen? When I started with Cerberus was in 1999, I believe they had around four or five billion dollars under management. We're a very small office on 450 Park. Now we have offices not just in New York, but we got LA, we got Tokyo, we got London, Frankfurt, Dubai. We're opening up an office in Riyadh. We're all over the world, we're global. We have a lot of other offices in the United States. Cerberus is a fund that has grown over the years. We really focus on credit. It's a big part of our business. You have not just the credit, but the non-performing loans. We have a huge portfolio in real estate. And then we also have private equity. So the private equity part is not the major part, but it's a very significant part. And Cerberus roots are in distressed assets. And this coming hurricane, if you will, we'll see how significant the recession is or is not. But in our background in distressed assets, it would give us a lot of opportunities. So you must have some interesting perspectives on this. You've been through multiple cycles, given what you do at Cerberus. What are you thinking about current economic climate? We obviously have a different interest rate environment and a different inflation environment. How are you approaching the current environment today? And how are you thinking about what investing will look like going forward? I listen to a lot of smart people in the world of economics. And my opinion is that we're probably heading for a pretty rough recession this year. I think it'll be unfortunate. It's going to be deeper and more prolonged than a lot of people think. In my opinion, it could be wrong. I actually believe that the Fed, notwithstanding what they may do in the May meeting on raising interest rates or keeping them the same, but by the end of the year, they're going to probably end up cutting interest rates because the economy is going to be so challenging. And therefore, the Biden administration is going to try to figure out how do you get into this recession if it's inevitable and how do you get out? because they want to be out by first quarter 2024. If we think about current economic climate and where we may be going, at Cerberus, you also went through 2008 recession. What were some of the lessons that you learned from that? And do you think some of those lessons are applicable to where we may be today? In 2008, everybody was challenged. We had a lot of challenging assets in our portfolio. One of the things that Steve Feinberg talks about in buying companies is he doesn't like the cyclicality of companies because if you misjudge and you get on that down cycle, you can't get out. We learned our lesson in a couple of companies. And I think that in our investing strategy now that with cyclicality is a negative for us because you just can't get your handle on it on when the downturn is going to come. And you never know what the next black swan is going to be. It happens. I mean, who predicted that Silicon Valley Bank was going to go under because of lack of liquidity? He had all the venture capital and smart people there. and The credit risk guy and the CEO, they just totally misjudged where interest rates were going to go. I think that brings up an interesting point here as well, which is things happen faster in a world where there's a globalization, where there's social media. 
if things happen faster, maybe cycles happen faster too. How do you think about that concept as a long-term investor? Well, it shows that it can be very unpredictable and unstable, short-term as well as long-term. Yeah, Silicon Valley Bank, I think $45 billion were withdrawn within 24 hours. And a lot of it is because social media, people got on the Twitter and whatever else and said, hey, get your money out. Things are not going well. And you have to put that in mind when you make investments. Social media in politics, in the private sector, it's here to stay. You better learn how to manage it. Do you think you have to think about that as a private investor? Or is that something that you're somewhat insulated from as a longer term investor trying to build companies of great enterprise value? It impacts some companies more than others, for sure. It's clearly a factor. And Social media, particularly in the advertising world, if you have a company that you want to brand, you better know how to use social media because it's fairly inexpensive, but very effective. Yeah, it's fascinating how that world is impacting the world of investing. If we think about where things are headed, what excites you most about the investing world right now? I just know there's going to be a lot of opportunities and there's going to be a lot of opportunities, unfortunately, in the distressed world. That's our background. That's how we were first founded, was through the SNL crisis. We'll weather this storm by investing in a lot of good opportunities. Right now, I think it's uh, be patient. And that's what we are. We're being very patient right now. You mentioned you also invest globally. Now you have offices all over the world. Do you also think that current economic climate will determine where you invest maybe beyond the U.S. as well and how you think about Europe or other parts of the world? We invest quite a bit in Europe. We're probably the largest non-performing loan servicer in Europe. Right now, we do not have any investments in China, and I will be very surprised if we do have investments in China because there is a very significant geopolitical risk in China. You saw what the Chinese authorities did to the Minks due diligence firm. The other day, they just detained five people out of the blue. Well, what they were doing was doing due diligence on Chinese, and they didn't like that. So they basically were going to shut it down, it looks like, from a distance. China is a country, there's a lot of people that have investments there, but hopefully we'll have better relationships. I think we should be talking to the Chinese more. I think we should engage the Chinese. You want to have a good relationship with them. And you really want to convince them that going into Taiwan is not in their best interest. So I want to go back to something you said about the banking situation. So you mentioned Silicon Valley Bank. It feels like banks are under a bit of pressure right now for a number of reasons, not just Silicon Valley Bank, but others as well. Banks are the lifeblood of private equity to some extent as well. They provide leverage. You're in the distress space. You talk about things like non-performing loans. You also service those loans. So you're very involved and integrated with the banking system more broadly. How do you think about the pressures on the banking system and how that may impact the private equity industry more broadly, given that they provide leverage to private equity firms to buy companies, things of that nature? Right now on probably major deals, the financing is required. It's probably going to be a little challenging, particularly the coupon that they're going to want to have on any kind of financing arrangement. People are talking about double-digit interest rates. Really? You want to finance that for five to 10 years? I'm not so sure, so you might just wait. We have a very significant lending fund on our own, and we've been in the lending business since 1997. And we have so many opportunities right now because the banks have shut down. They're shut down right now for a period of time. I don't know how long it's going to be, but the board of directors, they're meeting. They're saying, okay, fine, we can't let this happen here. 
So what do they do? They stop and wait and see what the economic landscape is going to look like and conserve all their cash, keep the reserves as high as they possibly can and not do much. That's not good for the economy. Maybe smart for them. And they're doing it out of fear. And fear is not necessarily a good thing to respond to. You mentioned that you've created businesses out of the banking sector, pulling back on lending, things like that. How do you think about the evolution of Cerberus as a platform? You're an integrated horizontal platform. What lessons can be learned from something like that? We have a very diversified platform. As I said, we got credit, we got real estate, we got private equity. And we also have an opportunity where we share back and forth. Sometimes something comes to our lending group and they go, you know what, this is really more of a private equity deal. Same way with the private equity folks. This is more of a lending deal. So to have all those various platforms and working together has been very effective and efficient for us. Steve Feinberg is the one that was the co-founder and the brains behind this whole organization. He saw that and he saw the synergies between having these various silos and it's worked. That's a fascinating lead in to last question I'd like to ask here, which is you've been in the investment world for quite some time now, seen a lot of different things, different cycles. What's the best advice you've ever gotten about investing? It's a old adage that sometimes the best deals you do are the ones you don't do. I think being patient is probably the best advice that I've had because you're in the deal world. You want to do the deal. You want to get it done. You want to take control. But you got to stop and think, is this the right deal at the right price at the right time? And do we have the capacity to grow this company? So patience is a real virtue. It's a great way to end this podcast. Thank you, Vice President Quayle, for coming on this podcast and sharing your wisdom. Pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. See you again. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites. And you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com. And follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Sidgmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot and have a great day. We're going